Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It is my pleasure to be joined today by Trudy. Trudy has a very interesting story. Um, from the ages of 19 to 42, she was uh, essentially polydrugged on several psychiatric medications, written off, nearly sent off to a group home to live because she'd essentially given up. But from there, came back, um, withdrew herself of several medications, is now living a very fulfilling full life uh, with a family. And um, there's a lot of really interesting topics in here. One, you know, the effect of uh, diet on withdrawal symptoms and how that helped Trudy uh, come through. And the other interesting uh, thing we're going to be discussing is uh, tapering several drugs at the same time. Uh, so, Trudy, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm just going to let you just kind of jump right into it. Tell us uh, what happened. Um, how did you end up on psychiatric medications? And just walk us forward from there. Sure. Well, I'd like to say thanks for having me here today. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Um, so I kind of ended up in the psych system through a combination of teen angst um, and trauma. And I figured that, you know, taking the right meds was going to make everything better. And that would be my path to happiness. Sounds kind of trite mm -hmm. to say it that way, but I think it's probably a fairly common path of ending up there. Mm -hmm. And what was so, okay, so what were the first medications that you were placed on back then? Oh, wow. My very first medication was Prozac. Mm -hmm. um, and I, that was actually a brief exposure at 17. Um, and a pediatrician prescribed it. And this would have been 1994. Mm -hmm. um, so it was still kind of early days of Prozac before like the black box warnings or right around the time that happened. And I stopped eating. Uh, I like became clinically, I would have been considered anorexic, but it was caused by the Prozac. And so the doctor yanked me off the Prozac after about six weeks. Um, and I started eating again. Mm. And I think I was on a low dose of trazodone um, at that time, but was still in the care of a pediatrician until a few years later. Okay. And um, looking back on when you were you know, first on medications in that earlier portion of your life, late teens, 20s, were they helpful at all? I mean, was, it, was there something therapeutic about them that was at least working, at least at the start? No. Um, and it's partly why I started collecting diagnoses. You know, initially there's this one and then they add this one because instead of blaming medications when they don't work, it's the patient that gets another label and another medication. And when I was referred to a psychiatrist um, at 19, she put me on Zoloft and I don't know if there was anything else at the time, but within six weeks I was suicidal and was hospitalized. And I came out of that hospitalization on a benzo, an antidepressant, a mood stabilizer, an antipsychotic uh, and something for sleep. So I went, you know, at the age of 19 from being a pretty healthy person to just being deeply, heavily medicated. 
And how long, I guess, how long did it take you to realize, I guess, after you'd kind of gotten on the polypharmacy train and you were accumulating these different diagnoses, how long did it take for you to come to the realization that, you know, maybe there was something wrong with the way you were being treated? What was that journey like for you? Long, actually. Um, I spent a lot of years where I actually went out and bought prescription, like the books that were like the compendium of different pharmaceuticals. And I would flip through the books trying to find a medication that I hadn't been on thinking, oh, it's, you know, I just have to find the right med and I can just take this to my doctor and everything will be okay. Um, so I would say, you know, it was probably a full five years before I reached the point of going, okay, adding things isn't accomplishing anything. Uh, I'm really not feeling better on some level. Um, and it, this happened right after a fairly long hospitalization that had been a few months long. I'd been discharged and had actually received ECT in that hospitalization as well and had been home maybe a couple weeks and was feeling suicidal again. And I got mad. Um, like, I actually have this vivid memory of where I was in my house, what I was doing. And I was legitimately mad that, you know, I was never going to be able to succeed at killing myself. The meds were never going to work. Like, clearly what I was doing was not working. And in that moment, I guess, you know, you have to give the human spirit credit for how resilient we are inside ourselves if we can listen to what our inner core is telling us um, because the the decision I came to was my only choice is to live so how do I learn to live you know if meds aren't going to give me the answer there's no escaping from life how do I build happiness um, and that was really that was the point where you know I started looking at okay you know these antipsychotics they're not helping me, these benzos and sleeping pills, like I'm still not sleeping. Um, and that was the time period when I kind of went from this laundry list of meds to a shorter list um, and started going out for walks and really trying to just do things that I felt would build myself up, kind of, I guess, fake it till you make it sort of idea. How old were you at this stage when you've just, you, I mean, you've had the apex treatment, you've had ECT, and then it's failed. How, how old are you when when you're angry? Um, like 20, 2000, uh, 24. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and so you came to that, you know, I speak to some people and they go, oh, you know, I stumbled upon like anatomy of an epidemic or something like that. And, and, and that's when, the, you know, that's when they go on the journey. But it sounds like for you, it was at least at that time, personal experience, you just said, this does not make sense, you know, that none of these treatments are working and you just trusted your intuition and, and started reducing things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I had a pretty hands-off doctor at the time. Uh, so I, you know, I was never prescribed, I, at that time anyways, I wasn't prescribed heavy levels of benzos. I was always afraid that I was going to get dependent on them. And my doctors would say, you're so afraid of getting dependent on them, you're never going to, you don't have to worry about that. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I kept that fear. Um, and so instead of taking, you know, the clonazepam three times a day or whatever it was, I tried to use it just when I needed it. Um, I 
used the Ativan truly only when I felt I really needed it. So I avoided that like multiple dosing every single day thing. Um, and I was on Zopiclone, um, I think at the time for sleep. And I think I, I truly dodged a bullet and got lucky because I just, I looked at it and I'm like, I'm not sleeping with the meds. And I just stopped them like just cold Turkey. I stopped the benzos. I stopped <laughs> the sleeping pills. And, you know, I know enough now to know that's a really bad idea. And I have vivid memories of just laying awake, not sleeping and telling myself, okay, I'm not sleeping, but I'm resting. Yeah. Eventually I'm going to sleep. And that was how I got myself through the nights until my body learned to sleep again. That's it. Yeah. There's a couple of interesting thing there. One is that, um, and I, unfortunately it's still fairly similar, but there's been some changes is doctors think addiction and dependence are the same, you know, you, you're low risk for addiction, you know, is, is what they meant to be saying, you know, to, to be craving it and wanting to take it all the time. But the longer you stay on a drug, the more physically dependent you become on it. So it doesn't really make sense what they said at all. Um, and you were right to be wary and not take it every day. And and then also that comment about coming cold turkey off the hypnotics and the, um, and the benzos. I mean, the majority of people can do it, you know, and it is really painful. But every time you do it, it's like playing Russian roulette because that is the time. Where, where people develop the protracted withdrawal injuries. So it, it, it doesn't so much as sur surprise me that you were able to do it. It's just, you know, there's just a, a fraction of people that when that happens, it's, you know, they, they develop the, you know, the neurological injury. So you're, yeah, you're really lucky to, to, to avoid that. Um, did you feel like, you had to, I mean, were you able to be truthful with your psychiatrist about your concerns and your desire to be on less and, uh, or was that, or were they worried, you know, cause I mean, you'd, you'd had, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you'd had suicide attempts or, or something like that. If you'd gone and gotten ECT at that stage, you know, you're kind of a chronic treatment resistant case, you know, in, in yeah. the eyes of the doctor. And so they're thinking, Oh, liability, you know, I don't know if less meds is, is good. What, what, what was that like? Uh, that relationship and saying, Hey, I actually think I want to be on less. She really didn't say much. Like I would go in and I would just say, this is what I did. Okay. <laughs> and she really didn't say much now, you know, years down the road, um, like she gave me an Ativan prescription again. And I, you know, would use one Ativan in like the period of six months, you know, it was 2009 before, you know, I had truly had my last Ativan. Um, and, you know, it it's hard to untangle the web of what part is, like, at what point do you think, oh, I didn't really have major withdrawal, but I had these, you know, so-called mood instability that led to other medication changes um, was parts of that maybe withdrawal that, you know, I just didn't understand. Like, it's really, it's hard to know. Um, I think my tolerance for difficult times increased. So I was less quick to say, give me something to fix this. And I think that probably made a bit of a difference because um, I was looking for, you know, in the first five years, I was looking for solutions. I was like, if I thought there was a magic pill that was going to make everything better and it was, I just had to find it, you know, <laughs> 
<laughs> that was what I truly believe. I'd like to get your thoughts on this because um, you're almost criticized these days if, you know, if, if you tell someone, hey, just wait, you know, you can wait, you can get through this, it'll be okay. You know, they start saying, oh, you're just one of those people that says everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And, you know, it's not that simple. It's And, and the more that, you know, we've seen the, you know, the profitability of the medications and the groups, you know, advocating for the sufferers, you know, come out. They, they've pushed this whole idea of, um, um, you know, you know, treat depression early, you know, don't, don't be weary of medications, they're safe and effective, you know, don't stigmatize things. And it, yeah, I, I would say it almost engenders that attitude of like, hey, I'm not feeling well, you know, I have this illness, I have this problem, and this is a totally reasonable thing to do. And, you know, maybe waiting is actually, you know, maybe I, that that's just you know, old thinking from people who are just kind of set in their ways and just want everyone to just like figure things out on their own. I, I don't know if you felt that pressure back then. Um, I wish someone had said to me, you know, let's deal with your trauma. Maybe we don't need to, like, it's really normal to have these kinds of feelings after the experiences you've been through. Um, that was probably what I most needed to hear when I was young because, you know, there's this rose-colored glasses view, right, of you find the right meds, you take it, you feel better, but nobody talks about medication poop out, nobody talks about what happens if it doesn't work, um, and I think, you know, and this is maybe a broader topic, but I think as a society, we've somewhat lost our tolerance to hear other people's distress and support them in it, and I think a lot of what we see now is cancellation of distress. It's, I can't tolerate your distress, so I'm going to tell you to take a pill because I think that'll make your distress go away, rather than meeting people where they are at and saying, hey, what's going on? What can I do for you? How can I accompany you on this journey? Um, how can we, you know, build up your strengths so that these points that you struggle with aren't the focus of your life. They're just something that comes up from time to time and you can manage them. Um, and I, I don't say that to minimize people's suffering. I say it to really see the suffering and say, you know, just because someone is suffering doesn't mean something is wrong with them. Like there's a lot of human suffering that is a perfectly normal reaction. And I think putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound doesn't do much to actually help them heal. Yeah, you know, it actually can make them worse. Um, and and like you said, it's, you know, especially with illnesses like PTSD and um, where, I mean, you know, the longer that I've seen people with PTSD and treated it, I mean, it's, it's a complete rewiring of the brain is what I see. It's, you know, that, that amygdala in there, that fear response center is so activated and you, and you, and you get people who's, you know, they used to go out and they used to do things and they used to be comfortable in different situations and with different people. And then their world just becomes small. You know, the, the amygdala is so sensitive. There's, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to see that person anymore. I, I want to live in this kind of area because that's what my nervous system is, is capable of handling. And I think one of the most, and, and, and this lasts forever for some people. I mean, I, when I was in training, I was still treating Vietnam war veterans you know, from, you know, from the seventies, you know, still had PTSD, this, still the same thing. They had talked about their trauma, 
you know, for the last three decades, you know, or longer. And it was, and it was still there. It was just this fundamental rewiring. And so just the whole perspective of, you know, this is PTSD. This is what it's like. This is the journey. You know, th- these are, these are how you will adapt to, to deal with this. And, 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 and so there's that side of things where it's like, you need to set up the expectations of, okay, this is what's happened and this is what we see. And then, and then the other side of it is, yeah, if you take this medication Prozac, sure, you know, it's going to turn the volume down on things. Maybe you'll be able to get back a little bit to, to your old self, but, you know, the drug's only been studied for a couple of months in clinical trials. There's a good chance that it will not work eventually. You'll be maxed out on 80 milligrams a day. And, oh, by the way, we don't have any good resources for how to pull you back from that, apart from adding antipsychotic medications to augment it which, by the way, could cause, you know, a risk of permanent movement disorder. So it's like, which way do you want to go? Yes. Like, do you want to go the drug way or do you want to go, okay, this has kind of happened to me and now I need to figure out how I'm going to manage this. Um, and so, I mean, those are the conversations that I don't see happening. You know, I talk to, to a lot of people like you and um, and I don't know, that, that's, that's my two cents on it two cents on you know, everything that's wrong with the initiation of medications these days. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I really think that, and I see it cause I've, I have teenagers um, and the amount of teenagers being prescribed medication is just, it's stunning. Um, and I think it really, you know, the analogy I give my kids is that, if a rainbow was only purple, it wouldn't be a rainbow anymore. And, you know, we really need the full spectrum of human emotions, including grief and sadness and anger and hurt and pain. Like all of those things round us out and they give us empathy and understanding and they help us connect to each other as people. And obviously you don't want to get stuck in that side of things. But if you have a you know, you've got exercise and friends and social connections and, you know, all of the positive side of things. That's where we get the rainbow from. And when we take a pill, we're trying to mute all of those so-called bad negative things. And I, I look at it not really as being bad, but as what do I need to learn from this feeling? Like, okay, I'm feeling, you know, I'm not today, but if I'm feeling really discouraged, why am I feeling discouraged? Like what happened? Do I need to reach out to a friend and, you know, go do something fun? Do I need to address a hurt feeling that I have? Maybe I had a misunderstanding with someone. Maybe I've neglected my sleep and I'm just run down. Um, And like there's nuance there. Right. And I think, that nuance is lost when you're given a prescription. Let me ask you this, yeah, and I'm picking up on a subtle thread that you mentioned about the tolerance of others for, for behavioral change and distress. Um, who did you feel like was um, frightened by how you were doing? Was it, was it your family? Was it the people who were treating you? Who, who was, uh, yeah, who, who felt like uncomfortable where they, you know, it, it kind of, the, the pressure came on a little bit like, I need to fix this. You know, I need to go and take a medication. Yeah. Yeah. That's a super interesting question because um, at the time I first kind of was seeing like the pediatrician group, the one who first prescribed the Prozac, 
um, I'd been referred to that I'd found the group because I was living with a family to finish up high school and at that time the PTSD was so acute that I was screaming in the middle of the night and crying and I truly believed that you know one of the people that abused me was going to find mm -hmm. me and come and take me um, and you know it's easy in hindsight to be like well of course you know random person isn't going to find you in a completely different city but like you said the brain is pretty hardwired um, after trauma. So it was really her saying like, this can't go on, this isn't okay, like you need to go get help. Uh, and I think even, and, and her intentions were good and supportive, you know, it wasn't a judgmental like sort of thing. It was just, a, these are the kinds of things that you don't deal with by yourself, that you see a professional and you let the professional tell you what to do. Um, and I think, you know, within my family of origin, there was really very low emotional um, intelligence would probably be mm -hmm. the, the best way to put it. So I was quite naive um, and I didn't have a lot of life skills, even though I was getting to be an older teenager. Um, and I think all those things kind of contributed to, along with, I was a bit of a science nerd, um, you know, I actually truly believed in the science of I'm going to take this medication and it's going to make everything better. So I, th I think it was everywhere I looked, mm -hmm. it seemed like that was the only thing. And to it do. makes sense that your, um, that, that your new family was saying, you know, you're clearly suffering. Let's go talk to the, talk to a professional. I mean, that's totally reasonable, but you know, 1994, right? That was that when you when you were 19. I mean, we're talking like the Prozac. So I was 17 in '94. Yeah. yeah. So that's like the Prozac heyday. You know, it had been on the market for about six yeah. years, and so it was everywhere. And that was that was like the new way to do things. And I, I hate to say, not a lot has changed since '94. I mean, I would I I'd see a lot of, you know, family physicians just, oh, don't worry, we'll get you on this. It's it's fairly safe and effective, and you know. And, yeah. Okay. And yeah, and there was definitely no talk of like we don't know long-term effects. We don't know how long you'll need to be on it for. We don't know how you'll stop taking it. Um, you know, by the time you get into the late '90s, you can find a little bit about discontinuation syndromes, um, but they were that was what they called it, right? They didn't call it withdrawal. They called it a discontinuation syndrome like oh yeah this is coming out of your body you're going to notice it's out of your body but it's don't worry it's not withdrawal mm -hmm. yeah you know yeah so i mean we i mean that's and the other thing you're hearing your story is you know we trust our healthcare professionals you know your your new family was trusting them as well and it's and it's like they, they they've just been letting people down the, the whole time by by not appreciating you know that the issues of taking these medications are so much more complicated than than I guess they were taught to believe. And I mean, and not not to rag on them too hard because you know obviously you know I know many healthcare professionals, uh, psychiatrists included, you know, of, who have ended up in the exact same position. You know, damaged by medications. You know, and it's and it's their it's, it's their bread and butter of what they do day in day out. So it's I think there's just this there's been this huge ignorance about. Um, how complicated these things are um but okay so so w w walk me forward now so you, you're 25 ish and you start to kind of 
untangle this web of polypharmacy. I, I know you mentioned, I think, that you, you stopped when you were like 42. Maybe that's right or wrong. Uh, but around, around them, what, what happens between 25 and 42, you know, this kind of long journey to, to coming off? Yeah, so I got off of, you know, what I deemed the worst or the ones that were causing me the most problems. And, but I was still, I still, my doctor was still very, um, I guess, aggressive um, at the time in terms of, oh, you know, here's this symptom, let's, you know, we're going to add an antidepressant or we're going to take you off the antidepressant or, you know, I think you're not sleeping enough, I'm going to give you a tiny dose of an antipsychotic. So there was a lot of small ups and downs and changing from one med to another um, while I was with that psychiatrist. And that lasted through, goodness, I couldn't even tell you the year because it was a lot of years, like maybe 2012-ish, somewhere in there. And then I changed psychiatrists and the new one was very minimalist. So at the time when I changed, I was on um, Buspar, Stratera, and Lamictal. Um, and at that point, prior to the referral, we'd already figured out um, that taking another antidepressant was a never, that I didn't react well to them, and so I should never take another antidepressant. So the entire time I saw that kind of middle psychiatrist, I guess you could say, nothing was really changed with my meds. And so the story I told to myself at that time was, this is what I need forever. Like, yes, I still have some fluctuations, but nothing's going to make it better. And if I stop them, then my life will fall apart and I won't be able to be a mother and I won't be able to work. And that was kind of the crux of it. And then, you know, I'll, I'll kind of jump ahead a mm -hmm. few years again. And I got re the psychiatrist I'd been seeing took a leave of absence or a sabbatical. Um, and I got, I went to a new psychiatrist who's the one I still have. And in like this, it, it's a hilarious story because when I started seeing him, this was February of 2017, I go into the very first appointment and I'm super proud of myself because I'm so medication compliant. You know, like here's my meds. I always take them. I never do anything funny with them. Um, and it was either that day, the day before, or the day after. I, I don't legitimately know when I had stopped the Stratera cold turkey. Um, and it was, I was very cognitively uh, clouded at the time um, because Lamictal with long-term use starts to cognitively impact you and um, causes really early dementia symptoms. I thought I had early dementia. Um, it was so bad. So anyways, I had filled my dosette thought I had filled it, but I'd run out of the Stratera yeah. and had forgotten when my husband brought the Stratera home to fill up my dosette. So, you know, I think I saw the new psychiatrist on the Tuesday and it was Thursday night when I realized that I was completely off the Stratera. I had no idea when it had happened, but I'd been having all of these weird GI things going on. And so I call him in a panic on Friday. <laughs> and I'm like terrified he's going to fire me as a patient because I've only just met him and 
had told him I never missed medication. And now I'm calling three days later to tell him that, oops, I stopped this medication. I don't know when. Uh, and, you know, to his credit, he, you know, I had said to him, I don't think I have ADHD. Um, like at some point I'd like to get rid of this medication. And so he said, well, you know, some people have difficulties coming off of it. They might have a few weeks of withdrawal symptoms and other people don't notice any difference. So, you know, let's see how things go for you. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of that. And so the interesting part within all of this was I had recently had um, heart testing done because I had uh, tachycardia at rest. My heart rate was very high. It recovered, right? And yeah. so I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So coming off of the Stratera, all of a sudden my heart rate drops yeah. back to normal and I wear like a fitness tracker. So I saw it right away, right? And then the withdrawal hit mm -hmm. and it was not good. It was, it was very, very bad. Um, and so we're in this situation of like, we can't reinstate the medication because of now we know it was affecting my heart rate, right? So starting, restarting it is not an option. Um, and Stratera is um, an SNRI. So it's not the same as like a stimulant where it's like, just choose a different stimulant. It's actually, it was originally tested as an antidepressant, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so here I am stuck in this withdrawal. And so my psychiatrist's suggestion after like six or eight weeks was, well, we could give you this. And I, I it might've been Abilify. I don't remember what it was. I just know I went back to my car. I looked it up. It was an atypical antipsychotic. And I came back to my next appointment and I said, nope, never taking an atypical antipsychotic again. Please don't ever suggest it. And like that was, you know, he's never suggested another medication to me since then. Mm -hmm. um, so in the meantime, I'm suffering, right? Um, and I'm worried I'm going to lose my job. I'm worried like about all of these things. How do I relate to the people around me? Um, and so I found this program that I signed up for that was like, change your diet, feel better. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was kind of, you know, that's the big turning point for me was that it, you know, I spent all these years looking for what's the thing, you know, what do I fix to feel better? And was completely looking down the wrong, in all the wrong places. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what was the diet that, that you did? So it was basically a paleo diet. Mm -hmm. um, initially, like it was a really restrictive elimination diet for 30 days. Um, and then you reintroduce things. Uh, and what I discovered, so we, my family history is full of celiac, um, including at the time I already knew my oldest child had celiac. Um, and it's interesting because celiac is an autoimmune and there's actually old published research around um, the effect of removing gluten on schizophrenics if you do it on their very first psychotic um, thing like it. I don't know, it was years ago I found it. It was like 42-year-old research at that time. Um, but basically, my removing gluten, my brain cleared up. Um, I, I was level. Like, I, I didn't realize until I stopped eating gluten that even with, you know, feeling, with being functional, 
I spent a lot of time every day in my head managing my thoughts. You know, this is how I, you know, to give an example, you know, someone says something and when my brain is working normally, it's just face value. Now, if I've had gluten, it's not face value. And so when I was eating gluten all the time, it was this constant circle of, okay, this is what I think is, is this what they probably meant? Like, this is my emotional reaction. Were they Mm -hmm. trying to get this reaction from me? It was like, everything had to be thought through and I couldn't trust And I didn't even realize that I didn't trust my own perceptions and all of that stuff. Um, It wasn't until I got exposed to gluten after removing it. And I'd had, you know, a period of about six weeks or so of not doing that. And it was, and I'd forgotten how to do it. It wasn't constant anymore. And like, can I ask, you know, when, you know, when you were questioning your interpretation, I mean, was that kind of like a fear response? Like, you would have a tendency to interpret things that people were saying maybe in a in, in a more critical way or something like that, you know, like what are they really trying to get across or, or was it more confusion? I'm trying to get a sense of how like being in that maybe lower inflammatory state versus the highest state was influencing your interpretation of, uh, you know, communication coming in, yeah? Yeah, that's a really tricky yeah. question because... I was fully in touch with reality, but I think it's almost like being one foot in reality and one foot not in reality. And the kinds of questions someone might say to themselves to try and keep their foot in reality and not lose it. Um, because it was, you know, and I'll, I'll actually give the example of my first gluten exposure because it's so out there. Um, I had a conversation with a close friend that was really personal. Um, and it was a good friend. And then I received a text message from someone who sent who was another friend and sent me just a joking thing. And it just coincidentally happened to be on the exact same topic as this deep conversation. And my instant belief was, oh, my goodness, I can't trust this friend. Yeah. This friend went to this other person and shared all of my secrets. And it was pure devastation because it was like instantly all of the trust in the friendship was gone. Like it, that's a completely, like that's not a reasonable reaction to a coincidence. Um, and normally that's not how I would respond. I would just be like, whoa, this is out of left field. Like, yeah. <laughs> why are well, you asking this question? I mean, that's the interesting thing. I mean, we have these, I guess these, these, these th- thresholds of, um, you know, of, um, I guess, sympathetic activity. I mean, if, if there's too much sympathetic kind of activity kind of coming out of the amygdala in the brain, you know, we start to see things in a more threatening way. And I mean, your set points are already higher with the, with the PTSD diagnosis. I mean, when you've had interpersonal trauma, I mean, this just, you know, kind of like stamped into your brain is this level of distrust for people and, 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 and threat and just persists. And then, Let's say, for instance, you now you're on a high inflammatory diet, you know, something that's causing further excitation in the system and, and all of that. I mean, instead of being here, now you're kind of up here and, and things that would be, like you said, you know, more benign, more out of left field. Now it's like it, it's, it's really kind of becoming this, this, this higher threat. And, yeah. and, and by changing your diet, you can bring it down into a level where, you know, even with the PTSD, the other cognitive faculties can kind of rein that in 
and bring you to a place where you have a more a accurate interpretation of what's going on. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and it really makes me, you know, wonder, like, if I had known this about myself 20 years ago, you know, how would that have influenced yeah. everything, right? And, and the other thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, coming off Stratera, you know, it's a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. It's, you know, it helps people focus, helps them stay engaged. But again, that's also sympathetic activity. How did you tease out what the effect of the, the gluten-free diet from maybe coming off Stratera and not having that additional kind of adrenergic push on your system? Like what made you so, you know, confident that, hang on a second, this diet is, is it's really here and it's not the, um, it's not that I, um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is that this, there's this on off relationship with diet where you could just try gluten again and then like things might flare up. But I, I wanted to hear like your kind of thoughts and teasing those things yeah. out. So I had, February was when I stopped the Stratera mm -hmm. and I was the first six weeks I kind of had, I guess, typical acute withdrawal. And then I had two weeks that were good. And then I went back into withdrawal and it never let up from, um, you know, whenever eight weeks from February is. Um, so like from sometime in April until October, when I went gluten-free, I had this constant, you know, problematic state of cognitive errors and um, just really, really struggling. I was emotionally sensitive. And, you know, it's funny because I don't actually remember all of what was going on at the time anymore because I, I remember it was intense and I felt like I can't live this way indefinitely, like something has to give, like, I'm willing to take extreme action to make this better. Um, but it's far enough in the past now that what the nature of that intensity was like isn't as clear anymore. Um, and after I'd been off of gluten and had changed all of the other stuff, the withdrawal basically just, and I felt better than I had ever felt, like than I ever remembered feeling. Like there was just this, clarity so it was like all the things that i knew were connected to withdrawal disappeared but there was also this extra level of oh people live like this that kind of emerged that i had never experienced in my adult life um, and that was actually what prompted me to taper my last two medications was like okay i I'm feeling good in a way that I've never felt good on medication before. So what are the medications doing for me? Uh, like at the point where you're feeling better from a diet change than all of these medications. And I was starting to develop um, things like, so I had a tremor from the Lamictal, which I didn't know was from the Lamictal, but I thought it was left over from the antipsychotics, but it turned out to be from the Lamictal. Um, my muscles would sometimes just involuntarily let go of things. Um, I'd had testing done to see if I had early MS because of the thing of just the random, like I'd be holding a fork eating and it would just fall out of my hand. Um, and so those things, you know, I didn't know at the time, but found out through, you know, time and tapering that I had all of these physical issues being caused by the medications themselves. Um, 
And tell us now a little bit about the um, about the decision to taper uh, the buspar and the um, lamictal simultaneously, because that's um, that's kind of like a no-no, you know, for most, uh, you know, when you when you read the research. Well, I guess you read what other people say about it and how people advise it, and they say, you know, one at a time, we don't want to mix up, you know, cause and effect. If you do them at the same time, we don't know which one is going to be, you know, triggering your symptoms. But um, but, but you went ahead and did it anyway, which I think is interesting, and you had, and for good reason as well. So describe the rationale and kind of um, proceeding in that way and tell us a little bit about how you, how you did it and what it was like. Yeah, for sure. So I initially started out like the first decrease I did was Lamictal and then the next decrease I did was Buspar. So I initially started out alternating. I'd come across this idea uh, online that when you've had a long-term medication exposure, your brain adapts to having all of the medications. It a certain level in your brain. And so this theory basically said that if you decrease things and kind of keep them balanced, that it's an easier withdrawal. And this kind of just, you know how sometimes things get stuck in your brain and they just turn around and, and you are like, is this a good idea? Isn't it a good idea? Um, so I went through the first little while of my taper going back and forth. Um, and I, you know, I did have my doctor fully on board. Um, and, you know, I, I, I have to give great credit to him because when I went in and I said, you know, I want to try getting off of my medications. And he said, okay, you know, how do you want to do it? And, um, and I said, I want to go slow um, and make sure that I'm can hand that my body can handle it. And he said, what do you need from me? And I said, I need you to blame withdrawal and not relapse for any symptoms that come up. And his reply was, okay, for how long do you want me to blame withdrawal after a decrease? And that was a super, you know, and I, I kind of want to frame that background because it was such a supportive backdrop to begin a taper in where I didn't have to worry about coming in and saying, you know, these are the symptoms I'm having because, you know, I didn't have to be afraid he was going to try and pathologize what the very real withdrawal symptoms were that I was dealing with. Um, and so when I wanted to switch from the one at a time, what I started discovering was I would decrease one, then I would decrease the other, and the other one I was really sensitive. So I would end up doing kind of like one of the lamictal and then two tiny ones of the bus par. And I would notice when they'd get back to being close to in balance with each other, like as a percent of their original dose would be the best way to explain it, um, that decrease would be easier. And so I started thinking like, okay, I, my body seems to like this balance. And so I went in and I said to my psychiatrist, this is what I want to try. And he was really uncomfortable with it for the exact reason you said, like, how will we know what to do? And I said, well, I know what the withdrawal symptoms typically are with each of them. And I know that there's no going up on the lamicta. Once I've decreased, I need to stay there. But if I run into problems, I can, you know, always increase the bus par a little bit. And within a day, it'll kind of counter everything off. So I gave him this plan, you know, that, you know, I never had to interact with that plan. So who knows how 
realistic it was, but it sounded good at the time anyways. Um, and so it was scary um, going outside the norm um, because my doctor wasn't comfortable with it. Um, every online group you can find says, don't do that, that's dangerous. Uh, and yet I had this deep belief that this was what was right for me. Um, and so I did, you know, I call it a joint micro taper. So if you're doing your typical, you know, 5%, um, we'll say decrease in a month's time, I would calculate that 5%, I would divide it over 30 days, and I would literally, you know, some of it, some of my decreases were less than 0.1 milligrams in a day. Um, and so that was what the last eight, 10 months of my taper looked like was I had spreadsheets that calculated everything for me and the date on it. So I knew what date I was on. Um, and I went down little bit by little bit and kind of tricked my body into not seeing it as this giant change, but to adapting to the smaller changes. Um, and for me, it worked really, really well. Um, I think my my caution is that I think self-awareness um, is super important. And I also think, you know, I did a lot of math in terms of half-lives. <laughs> like, when am I going to be feeling the maximum effect of all of these tiny decreases? And when do I need to be paying the closest attention to withdrawal symptoms? Because if you've got you know, in my case, it was 21 days was the magic time frame. Um, so you've got, if at 21 days you run into a problem, you still have another 20 days that's going to catch up with you, right? Um, so there's a huge need for slowness and caution and support, you know, like the kind of work that you do with your patients um, is incredibly important um, to have that background but doing them at the same time definitely was much easier for me and can i ask um did you do uh, uh liquid micro tapers so uh for, for both of them okay and yeah and I did. What, what did you emulsify the um the the tablets in uh, so in canada there is a compound solution called aura oral suspend I think it's called it's either there's a few different ones and I'm mm -hmm. mixing up what's the Canada and what's the US but one of them was filled at a pharmacy um, and I had many conversations with the compounding pharmacist and I wrote everything down and then I went to my doctor and I said this is how the pharmacist says this needs to be written because he'd never written a compounded tapering prescription before and he wrote it exactly the way the pharmacist said it needed to be written. Uh, and then the other one, I actually just purchased the suspension liquid and used the dissolvable um, tablets, like the chewable dispersible ones that my doctor had prescribed and made my own. Um, I would say for the average person, it's better to just get both compounded at the pharmacy. Um, because there's a lot of room for error and if you're not like and you add in that there's a certain degree of cognitive clouding and confusion that someone who's tapering is going through and 
I don't think it's a realistic expectation to ask people to make their own liquids. Um, but that was, I had both sides and because I have trust issues, I was more comfortable mixing the Lamictal one myself. Um, did you do, um, was it a linear taper, like 5% from, from where you started the whole way down? Or how, how did you adjust the, the speed of the taper uh, as, as you went? So I want to say, and I actually, I should have brought up, I have a spreadsheet, so I can tell you exactly, um, and maybe I'll send mm -hmm. it to you after, and you can see exactly when how it's set When you send it to up. me, send me the script as well that the, that the physician had to send to the pharmacist as well. I'd like to see that, if you still have it. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I'm not going to have it, but I probably have the notes yeah, saved. Sure. Um, I do remember what it said because I had to understand it well enough to explain mm -hmm. it. Um, so I do remember what I asked to be written, but I probably have the notes saved in my phone that I can mm -hmm. send you. Um, I initially started out less than 10% per month. And what I discovered as I went down was that I adjusted to the micro taper. So when I got about three weeks in, I like had a certain level of withdrawal, but it was very low compared to when I'd done the drop and hold. So if you think of like, you know, if you put withdrawal on a 10 point scale where 10 is unbearable and one is like, you barely know it's there. I was probably hanging out around a seven or an eight um, for a few days when I would do the drop and hold. And when I switched to the micro taper, it became a continuous three to four would be where I would put it. So it was still there, but I could function with it. Um, you know, the, the downside is it's constant, right? So you don't get a break from it the way you get a break with the drop and hold. Um, so there's, you know, there were some things that I needed to manage um, and I set out a very specific, um, you know, these are the kinds of symptoms that I'll maintain my taper through. And these are the types of symptoms that I will pause my taper or slow it down through. Um, and for me, the line was um, anything physical or cognitive was slow it down or pause it. Uh, anything emotional, because the emotional side for me was unavoidable because of the bus par, it had such a powerful effect. Um, and so I was able to tolerate the emotional stuff. And so I accepted whatever happened from the emotional side but i actually got support from family and friends and said you know if you notice these types of things like if i um i i have expressive dysphagia um from ect uh and so like if you see this happening more often uh or you notice me having troubles with memory or like i basically gave them a list and said if any of these things happen I might not be able to tell for myself. So I need you to tell me that you're seeing this because these are the things that I'll pause my taper or slow it down for. Um, but by the end, it was quite a bit higher uh, in the percentages. And so I was really kind of breaking all the rules uh, in the last kind of couple of months of my taper because I'm tapering two at the same time. I'm up to like, I was at about a 30% um, per month decrease, I think at one point. And it was, 
you know, I, I think it speaks to the power of knowing your body. Well, I was going to say, you know, um, and trusting. There's, there's, there's rules, and then there's, I think, like um, the principles. And the principle is like when you do this, you know, it needs to be gradual and you need to check in with your body and you need to adapt. And I think that's like the principle. And then I think that kind of overrides the rules, you know, in a little bit, because if you just like if you had done, you know, the standard rule, like, you know, 5% cuts from the previous dose or something like that or something to that effect, you know, going down in a hyperbolic manner, um, that's a two and a half year process for a lot of people. And then that would have been another two and a half years for the, the, the other medication afterwards. And so, yes. I mean, so how long did it take you to come off the two of them? 22, 22 months. months. So, um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, I think these are interesting stories because I have a lot of people that come to me and they've been, you know, they've developed a, a like a protracted withdrawal injury from like a benzo and they've gone down the rabbit hole. They've like terrified themselves for the last like six months. You know, they've found anatomy of an epidemic and they're, they're looking back at the, the last 20 years of their life, just going, how did things end up this wrong? And they go, I want off everything. And it's like, you know, they're on like five different drugs. And so the idea of doing, um, you know, liquid daily micro tapers simultaneously for all of them it's definitely an appealing one and one I've been thinking about a great deal um, for some of these people who are just like, I just want off, you know, and, and, and doing that in 5% reductions, you know, every day, I think is, is, is totally um, a good idea. I, I, I think it's, I know it, it, it goes against, you know, what, what is in there and, and maybe I'll be proven wrong in the future, but it does seem like it's a worthy idea because, because not everyone wants to, wants to wait, you know, two and a half years consecutively for five drugs, you know? Right. Yeah. And that was a big part of what I, and the other thing that um, was really driving me in terms of a timeline was the bus par is only available in a generic and I could only take one generic um, changing to any of the other generics. It was like I had stopped at cold Turkey. And so I'd been through uh, numerous brand shortages where I had spent, you know, half the day calling around different pharmacies, trying to find the right brand to avoid feeling like my life was falling apart. And I, I think, you know, that's a part, that's something that really can't be overstated is that whether a medication is needed or not, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have the power to destroy your life if you stop it suddenly. Uh, and I, I think that's another part of the decision matrix, right? Like, do you want to give control of your future well-being to a pill? And especially in Canada, I, I know you guys have like frequent stock shortages. You know, I feel like every time I talk to someone from Canada who's on like a benzo or something, you know, they've you know, they've been hit with a stock shortage. So, I mean, that's also really disruptive oh. or... Um, you know, if you, if you go overseas and someone take, you know, steals your bag or something like that, you're uh, right. Mean, or even, yeah. Like, you know what? One of my most exciting moments was after I finished a taper was I was out at a friend's house in the evening. It got late. I was tired. And she said, do you want to stay the night? Yeah. And normally I wouldn't have been able to because I couldn't miss a mm -hmm. dose. 
And once I was off, I all of a sudden had this freedom of like, oh, sure, I can stay the night. Oh, I'm out doing something and I want to just grab a hotel and spend an extra day. Fantastic. I can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, you don't even realize that you have kind of lost that little bit of life of freedom to live how you want to live until you get it back. And you're like, wow, like that, that ability to say yes to that thing that you want to do without being like, sorry, no, you know, I have to get home and take my meds. Wow. Um, that's, that's powerful. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, but that's, that happens that that must happen all the time. Um, if you, if you're on them, I, um, we're getting to the, to, to the end of where, where I can stay, but I want to give you a chance to ask, uh, ask any additional questions or make any, additional comments about anything that, that you'd like uh, to discuss? Oh, um, well, I think it's fantastic, um, the support that you're giving to people who are in the thick of it. Um, and I really uh, appreciated the video that you put up a little while ago about, you know, how do you know when to keep at the same size of reduction or when to slow it down a little bit. You were kind of talking about the degree of withdrawal symptoms and is this, did it just so happen that a wave of symptoms coincided with the reduction? Um, And it was some really fantastic advice that I shared in the group that I Mm. admin. So, you know, I'd like to say thank you to that. Um, uh, And the other thing that I'd like to say is that you know, there's a lot of cause for hope um, that withdrawal is probably one of the hardest things someone is ever going to go through in their life. Like it, it's big, it's life altering, it's difficult, but it does end. Um, there is a point where you can look back and you can say, you know, this isn't, um, this isn't my life anymore. I'm not caught in this world and I can move on and do what I want and just live. Um, And so that's kind of, I guess, a message of hope that I'd like to pass on to everybody is that, you know, no matter how bad things might feel at this moment, there's always another moment and healing is absolutely possible. It doesn't always happen on the timeline that we want it to happen on, but it will happen. You just, have to hold that hope well well said um well i'm going to say thank you and um and, and and we'll talk more yeah absolutely i'd love to thank you for listening to today's episode if you want to see the full video interview we also post these to youtube just go to wit during psychiatry on youtube to find those you'll also find several youtube exclusive videos from doctors yosef and marissa posted several times a week Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.